All right, Jim. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Well, we want to pick up where we left off last time here in James. And you might remember, if you were here, that James gave a strong denunciation related to the rich exploiting and persecuting the newly established Church of Christ, the believers. These were Jewish believers um, that had been dispersed out away from Jerusalem, and James was writing to them this letter of encouragement and exhortation. Now, the general teaching of the verses that we looked at last time, the first six verses of chapter 5, is that the misuse of wealth and power, both wealth and power, I think, will bring God's judgment. As we said last time, it's not wealth itself that brings condemnation. There are many teachings in the Scripture telling us about the danger of wealth, but it's not wealth itself that brings condemnation. Rather, it is the fact that some people gain their wealth through unrighteous and unjust means, or they use their wealth in selfish and unrighteous ways. That's where the condemnation comes. So that's what James was dealing with here. Briefly, James says that the rich are condemned because of selfishly hoarding wealth and because they cheated their workers and because they live a self-indulgent lifestyle and because they oppress the righteous. Those are the things that we looked at last week in this section. So it should be obvious that the people that he was referring to in verses 1 through 6 were not Christians. You can't do all that kind of stuff and be a Christian. They were people who will stand condemned when Christ comes again and judges the world in righteousness. So anyway, that's what we looked at last time. We also said that these verses, 1 through 6, are not really written to the rich. They were actually written to warn and encourage the believers who received this letter not to envy the rich, or despair that God would not take care of the injustice that they were experiencing. There will soon be a great reversal of situations, James is telling these people. A great reversal of the situation they're in. God will bring blessing to the poor believers 
and judgment upon the rich who were persecuting them. So that was for an encouragement to them. So that brings us to where we are this morning, verses 7 through 11. Now, now James, James is switching gears here because he's now addressing himself to Christian brethren. You see how he starts this? Be patient, therefore, brethren. All right, so we're talking about Christians now, not these unrighteous rich people that <clears throat> have been exploiting them. They, these brethren had been the victims of ill treatment by the rich. His, count, his counsel to these Christians was not any kind of retaliation or resentment or even hopeless resignation. That was not his counsel. His counsel was to be patient. And patience is not hopeless resignation to the situation. We'll see that as we go on. In fact, if you noticed here, as Jim was reading through this, he mentions patience at least four times in this short section. Twice in verse 7, then he mentions it again in verse 8, you too be patient, and then he verse, uh, in verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So four times in these, these verses. You, you're not, you shouldn't miss his emphasis. He's talking about being patient in trials. They were to be long-suffering with those who were doing them injury. Long-tempered, not short-tempered. That's the way one person put it. Long-tempered, not short-tempered. How long do they need to be long-tempered and long-suffering? Well, James tells us here. He tells us until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, the word he uses there is, uh, well, the Greek word, and I'm not sure I'll say this right, parousia. Parousia. You know if that's right, Garrett? All right. None of us are really great Greek scholars here. But the only reason I bring that up is because the, the term itself is used in common Greek of that day for a royal visit. I think that's interesting. It was used for a royal visit. It carries the meaning of an arrival or a presence. The idea here is the return, the coming again of Christ in kingly majesty and glory which will bring about the deliverance of the believers and the condemnation or the judgment of the wicked. That's what he says be patient for. Wait for this. Until this time of deliverance arrives, James calls upon all the believers to exercise patience. The idea then, of course, is to wait for and look for with confident expectation the coming of the Lord. That's the idea. That's what he's bringing out in these verses. So James then gives an example from everyday life of what he's talking about. James was really good about giving examples <clears throat> and illustrations. Well, he does that here uh, in this verse. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it, get, it gets the early and latter rains. So he uses this example of a farmer waiting for the soil to bring forth the crop, which he plants patiently looking for God, to send the rains at the right time. And so he's saying, just like that, you believers must patiently look forward to the coming of the Lord. 
just like the, the uh, farmer is patient. So, you know, in, in some countries, there's a definite rainy season. Now, there's a little bit of that here in, in the Midwest, but in some countries they know exactly when the rainy seasons are coming, and that was the case here in Palestine. The early rains in Palestine were in October and November and were needed for the seeds to sprout. The late rains came in April and May and were needed for the crops to mature. The farmer then, as now, this hasn't changed, just like the farmer back then, they were dependent upon the weather over which they had no control. He had to wait and be patient for God to send the rains and bring forth the crops at the end of the growing season. So what's James telling his readers? He's saying, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. They're to strengthen their hearts. How do you do that? Well, you'd strengthen your heart by trusting in their righteous Lord and Savior who is going to come again for his people. You know, Christ came the first time as a Savior, Savior of the world, and he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness, we're told. So we're supposed to strengthen our hearts in that reality, you see. Stand firm in this faith, despite the present distress. Now, their distress had to do, this particular part of it, had to do with this exploitation by the rich. But we all live in certain aspects of a present distress. And we're to strengthen our hearts, we're to stand firm in faith, Despite the present distress, whatever that is for you right now, despite the present distress, because Christ is coming again, we're to look forward that, to that. We're to focus on that and patiently persevere until that time comes. So then James goes on in verse 9 to deal with something that often happens when we are in distress or under stress and when we don't focus on Christ. And you see that... He says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. What's he saying here? He's saying people in stress or under stress and in distress often complain. Isn't that true? Especially if we're not focusing on Christ. We try to vent the pressure on those around us. You know that saying, bad day at work, kick the cat? You heard that one? You know, come home and you got to deal with it in an unrighteous way. You don't have to, but you often do, so you're mad at the cat. Actually, though, it gets a lot worse than that because we end up grumbling and complaining against our close family, those close around us, our friends and family. In this case, it's grumbling and complaining against fellow Christians. See, that's what he's saying here. Don't complain, brethren, against one another. Why does he bring that up right then? Because distress often brings out complaining, you see. And uh, he's dealing here especially with complaining against fellow believers. James is saying, do not blame one another for the distress of the present. And it will soon, it's actually soon going to come to an end. Don't. Don't get into this thing of critical speech. As James has done before, he links wrong speech with judgment. You see how he does that here? 
you yourselves, that, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. He's talking to these people who are complaining or are tempted to complain. To criticize fellow believers is to put yourself in a position of danger. That's Just think about that now. That's what he's saying. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I mean, he's trying to bring this point home as powerfully as he can. It's wrong to have this complaining, criticizing, blaming attitude. And he says the judge is right at the door. To be fretful or impatient or critical or complaining because of difficult situations is a common reaction, but it is nevertheless sinful. And James cautions the believers here against this type of reaction, especially in light of the fact that we will all soon stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We've we got to be on our guard here on this thing. It's so easy to do this. Something's going wrong with, with your situation, and you want to take it out on somebody else. trials being faced by those suffering Christians would have put their patience to the test and given plenty of opportunity for bicker, bickering and criticizing. And actually, one person said, the same thing happens in the church today, even when Christians, even when Christians in America are more affluent and the trials are more contemporary. And then he brings out some examples. Difficult marriages, frustrated dreams, demotions at work, commotions at home, insomnia, high blood pressure, allergies, credit card bills, financial insecurity. All those things can be triggers for this attitude of complaining. Well, we have to guard against this. This is what James is saying here. Now, I don't want us to miss the, two, the really two strong applications that James makes concerning the coming of Christ. One commentator said, James begins by alluding to Christ's coming as a time of judgment on the wicked in order to comfort and encourage the struggling believers. But he then reminds those same believers that the coming of the Lord will also be a serious assessment of their own spiritual state and behavior. For that person who's a constant complainer, an impatient person, the judge is right at the door. These are strong words, James. The, 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 the letter of James is a strong letter. Now, if you've been thinking about what we're looking at here and really trying to analyze it, there may be a couple of thoughts that have come to mind, and I want to try to deal with those. The first one is this thought. 
did the early church believe that Christ would come soon, even within their lifetime? I mean, here he's writing to these, these Christians that have been scattered abroad, and in three, the first three verses, he mentions the coming of Christ three times. Behold, um, brethren, be patient until the coming of the Lord, in verse uh, 7. Verse 8, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, in verse 8. And then in verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. So, did the early church believe that Christ would come soon, even within their lifetime? Then a kind of a corollary with that is, are we to expect Christ to come again in our lifetime? Now, I want to say that I actually spent more time reading and studying on that subject, that is, the New Testament believer's view of the imminent return of Christ, than any other part of the message. I kind of got sidetracked, because it's, it's not an easy subject. Uh, and I hope that I will be able to give some light on this. But I have to say that I still don't feel I'm completely satisfied with the answer that I have on this. And let me just explain the situation here a little bit. Here's the basic problem. If the New Testament writers gave the impression that Christ would come back very soon, even within their own lifetime, that seems wrong. Why? Well... Here we are 2,000 years later, and Christ has still not come back. You know, there's a lot of verses in, in the Scriptures that give that impression that Christ is coming soon. Let me just read a couple here. Well, let's just turn to a couple. Uh, turn uh, back to Hebrews chapter 10. And these could be multiplied over and over again. These are, I'm just going to read two here. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 37. For yet a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. So a very little while, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells the people he's writing to, a very little while, and he who is coming will come and will not delay. And then go forward to First Peter. This is a little different aspect of it, but it brings out the soonness. Verse, uh, chapter 4, 1 Peter, and verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Well, those are just a couple. Uh, so, the question that we're asking ourselves here is, were the New Testament writers wrong about the timing of the second coming of Christ? It's not an easy topic. It's no small thing. Uh, in fact, this topic is often used by skeptics as an argument against Christianity. 
They would say something like this, Since Christ and his apostles were wrong about his soon return, how can you trust them about anything they say? And just to show you that this is not such an easy area to deal with, one of the commentaries that I use, which is a very good commentary by a man named Douglas Moo, he says concerning the early church's view of the nearness of Christ's return, this theme is one of the most controversial in the New Testament. So it's recognized as a controversial subject. Just the kind of thing I love to deal with. (laughs) Not really. Now, the answer that I've come to at this point, like I've said, I'm not totally satisfied with with this, but uh, anyway, this is where I'm at right now, is that Actually, many New Testament believers probably thought Christ would return in their lifetime. I think that's pretty clear from uh, the way the New Testament presents things, that he would probably return in their lifetime. But that's not necessarily what the New Testament writers meant to teach. What is meant in the many passages that deal with this subject is that every believer should soon experience, will soon experience, the coming of the Lord, and that they should be ready. Every believer will soon experience the coming of the Lord, and they they should be ready for this. The New Testament writers, and even Christ himself, wanted all believers in all generations to realize that all men will soon stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the emphasis of the New Testament. This does not mean that every generation of people should expect that Christ will come in their lifetime. Now, here's where we get a little controversial. Some people, in some situations, would start throwing tomatoes at me at this point. (laughs) It does not mean that every generation of people throughout the history of the church, should expect that Christ will definitely come in their lifetime. I don't think the idea of the imminent, and that means, when we say imminent, we mean any moment. The imminent return of Christ is really what the biblical writers were telling their readers to expect. Why is that? Well, it's because God does not intend his people through the centuries to expect something that will not really happen at least in their lifetime. Expect something that will really happen in their lifetime. God doesn't intend for his people to have that kind of an attitude. What I'm saying is that many of the expressions of nearness or soonness in the New Testament were given to make people realize that they personally would soon be experiencing the reality of this great event of Christ's return on earth even though it may not happen before they die or for many generations after. Uh, Now, you've got to be thinking here. These are not, you know, there's some things not easy to understand. Peter said that about some of the things that Paul wrote. Things not easy to understand. This is not easy to understand, but I want to try to make some distinctions here. So let me read that again. Many of the expressions of the nearness or soonness in the New Testament 
were given to make people realize that they personally would soon be experiencing the reality of this great event of Christ's return to earth, even though it may not happen before they die or for many generations. So if you're thinking, you might say to yourself then, it sounds like what I'm saying is that, that uh, there will, it will be soon, but it may be much later. Now here's how I think we should be thinking. Once a person dies and leaves this earth and enters the eternal realm, the interval between their death and the resurrection when Christ comes again will seem like nothing. Peter wrote this when he was dealing with this subject of Christ coming again and especially scoffers scoffing about that subject who are saying, where is the promise of his coming? This is what Peter said. But do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now here's... We talk about this part of one, uh, one day as, as a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. But there's also another little phrase in here, this thing of counting, counting slowness. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness. The way we would count sl slowness if we were here on earth all that time is not the same way we will be counting slowness in heaven. Each generation of saints in heaven will find it true that from their personal standpoint in eternity, Christ comes back to earth very soon. It's true for each one of us here. Christ is coming very soon. I'll try to elaborate a little bit here. There's no question that the New Testament church believed that they were living in the last days. With the death and resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the time called the last days began. Let's just turn back to Acts chapter 2. It's very clear. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And Peter is explaining what's going on. And he says this in verse 16. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and he goes on. But the point is, is that he was saying this, this event means that we're in the last days, you see. There's a prophecy from the Old Testament. In the last days, these things will happen, will happen, and now they're happening. So 
the church was in the last days from the time of the death and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That time is the last days. Paul says this, Now these things happened to them. This is in uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Talking about all the stuff that happened to the Old Testament Israel, mainly the judgments that were upon them for not following God the way they should. He says this, Now these things happened to them, Old Testament Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, that's New Testament believers, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are people, they, in the New Testament time, they were people that, they were, at that time, people who were experiencing the ends of the ages, and that's where we are too. So the New Testament church was living in the last days, in the end of the ages, and so are we. The next great event in God's timetable of history is the return of Christ. That's the way we should think about history. The next great thing that God has for mankind is the return of Christ. But no one knows when that will be. No one knows the length of this period we call the last days. I think that many New Testament church, many in the New Testament church thought that it would be very soon that Christ would come back from heaven. Now, I can't go into this very much, but I, I would just say that this, I think this was partly because they misunderstood what Christ said concerning the soon destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the whole Old Covenant system. Some of what Christ said, where he talks about this generation shall not pass away and certain other things that he said, had to do with the end of that whole Old Testament, Old Covenant system, which came, which took place in 70 A.D. That was just around the corner for them. So they misunderstood that. They thought that the things applied to the second coming of Christ. Christ was actually talking about his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He did come in terrible judgment upon the unbelieving Jewish nation in 70 A.D., but there is yet a much greater judgment upon the whole world when Christ is revealed from heaven in flaming, uh, with his angels in flaming fire. So, Christ himself said, No one knows the day or the hour of his return. In fact, he even said he didn't know himself, at least when he was here on earth, But he also emphasized to his believers that that, uh, to believers of that day and for all of us, every coming generation, that he wants his followers to be ready for him to come back at any time. Let's just look one section uh, up, one section on this. Mark 13 and verse 32. Thirteen, and we'll begin with verse 32. But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, 
for you do not know when the appointed time is. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting the slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midday, at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. The idea of being on the alert or being watchful does not mean that we're supposed to try to fit biblical passages into the latest newspaper headlines. That's not what what uh, this section or the other sections like this are talking about. Rather, it means to view, in view of the fact of the uncertainty of the time of the end, we should maintain a moral watchfulness, a spiritual vigilance over our lives, so that we're living as we should whenever Christ comes again. That's what he's talking about, being on the alert, not trying to deal with all the current events and prophecy. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about maintaining a moral vigilance over your own life, being ready for Christ to come whenever that is. We should be ready for the last days to come at all times. One, uh, again, uh, let me quote this commentator, uh, Mu. He said, Every generation of Christians lives or should live with the consciousness of the second coming that it could occur at any time and that one needs to make decisions and choose values based upon that realization. So it was true in James's day as it is in ours. We need to be patient and stand firm because the coming of the Lord is near. Um, to me, it's kind of helpful to think just this way. And I don't know if this will help you or not. But we should think in terms of being spiritually ready for Christ to come back anytime, but to plan in the physical aspects of our lives as if his coming is yet in the unknown future. We don't know when he's going to come. The time is uncertain, but the event is sure. So the Christian life should be lived in light of Christ's coming. For all of his people, through all generations, that time is not far away, because once we're with him in heaven, it will seem a very brief time until he establishes the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwell. Our redemption is drawing near all the time. Now, I've got a diagram here. I don't know if I've lost you on this or not. I thought maybe a diagram would help, so we'll see. What I'm trying to, to do here is show that for every Christian throughout the ages, 
Christ's second coming is near. It's right at hand. The mic? Okay. It's right at hand. And yet that does not mean that every generation should expect Christ to come in that generation. Okay, here's how it works. Now I have to leave the mic, but... Here's the, here's the New Testament church, okay? The people that James was writing to. He told them that Christ is coming soon. Some of them had already died. Remember he said... Uh, get back to James here. Because of this persecution, he said, You condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Apparently some of, these, uh, some of this exploitation got to the point where some of the Christians had already died. When you die, what happens? You go to be present with the Lord, right? That's true all along here. Uh, that was true in 70 AD. That was true in 1000. That's true in 2000. That's where we are here today. So here's the last days, all this 2,000 years. And throughout that time, God's people have been dying and going to be with the Lord. Now, how long, how long does it take? How long, how long will it seem when you get here to here? I'm saying it won't seem like much at all. So the time is, is for every believer throughout all the centuries, the time is short. First of all, you're not going to be here very long. James has already told us that. Your life is like a vapor, he says. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So Christians down through the ages, just like a vapor, they're up here. And once they're up here, they won't be long at all till they're over here. Because we don't count shortness the same. If you, if you live down here for a thousand years, it might seem like a long time. But you're not living down here. You're living up here. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. <laughs> so here's, here's a few questions. Could Christ return in our lifetime? The answer is yes. Will he return in our lifetime? I don't know. In fact, I would even say it this way. I think he probably won't. I think he probably won't. Now that would get me in trouble in a lot of places, but you're all my friends. <laughs> Nevertheless, each of us will very soon be present with the Lord because our life's just a vapor. And from then until the time when he comes to earth again will seem like a very little while. Yet a very little while, and he who is coming will come. What that means is if the last days were to actually last another thousand years, the story lasted two thousand years, if they were to last another two thousand years, it will still be a very little while for us personally because we won't be viewing slowness as if we were here on earth. Now, I'm not saying that the apostles had all this clearly in mind when they wrote some of the things they wrote. I really doubt if they thought when they talked about the last days that uh, 
those last days would last 2,000 years or more. I don't think that was in their mind. Well, all right. Let's go on to the last two verses here that we're dealing with today, verses 10 and 11. Let me just read them. As an example, brethren, of suffering and, and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So James gives us two examples of this attitude that he's been talking about, this attitude of patient endurance in trials. Here's two people, or two groups, well, one's a group, the prophets, and the other's a single person, who show us, or are an example of us, uh, example to us of patience in difficult and stressful situations. You know, many of the prophets in the Old Testament endured ill treatment uh, just because of being faithful to God. And uh, a prime example, he doesn't give examples here, he just puts a general statement out, but I, I, the example that comes to my mind is Jeremiah. I mean, here's one who suffered under the pagan kings, but he also was persecuted by his own people. And the prophets spoke out against injustice and spoke in the name of the Lord, and they suffered much injustice simply because of speaking out against injustice. But they kept patiently doing the will of God in the situations that God had them in. And they believed that God would eventually vindicate them. And we count them blessed who endures. That's what he says here. Uh, we count, behold, we count them blessed who endured. And he talks about uh, these prophets. And I think, you know, that's, that's the way James started out this letter Clear back in chapter 1, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And I think James was probably echoing again, we've brought this out many times, but I think he was probably echoing again the words of his half-brother, Christ, there in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot in James that you could correlate with the Sermon on the Mount. But you remember what Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we count them blessed who endured. And then when we think of someone who endured much suffering, Job comes to mind. So he takes Job, Job's personal example here. Now, if you remember, we studied through Job um, a year or two ago, and it's actually true that Job did some complaining. Uh, he had times where he went through what I would call pretty di deep discouragement and a wondering what in the world was going on. But in the midst of all that, he never abandoned his faith. One commentator said it this way, Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied 
but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. But what James is really wanting to emphasize, although he's talking about the endurance of Job, what he's really wanting to emphasize is the goodness of God. That God, in the end, ultimately brought much good into Job's life. And so he says, in the midst of all that, we need to realize that God is full of compassion and merciful. He was with Job, and he will be with us. James wants, he, James wants to comfort his readers by encouraging them that the outcome of the Lord's dealings with them in, this, in their present suffering will be for their good when Christ is revealed in glory. And that's really, you know, that's only when we're going to really see how full of compassion and merciful Christ is when he comes again, when, when we experience this resurrection and uh, the new heavens and new earth. Then we'll fully see how full of compassion and merciful God really is. Well, let me just say this in closing. Christian belief is always foundational to Christian practice. You've got to think the right thing. You've got to believe the right thing in order to do the right thing. And by belief, I mean what's really true about God. And what James is emphasizing here in these last verses, what he wants his readers to know with absolute confidence is that God is full of compassion. God's full of compassion. This, ultimately, is a source of assurance by which we can be patient in trials and persecutions and difficulties and distresses. In the midst of all that, you can stand on this. God is full of compassion and merciful. So James is saying, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That's when we'll see how full of compassion he really is. We, we have some sense of that already because we know what he's done for us in Christ. But we, it'll be magnified beyond our belief how full of compassion God is. So be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Well, Lord willing, we'll take up there next time. We're coming to the close of the letter now. And uh, James has some final exhortations for us.